Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 25 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Ross McKay, the co-founder and CEO of Daring Foods. Founded in 2018, Daring produces plant-based chicken with a mission to create a more sustainable, delicious, and nutritious option for chicken-loving consumers. In just their first year in the U.S., Daring has already locked in nationwide retail partners including Sprouts, Gelson's, and Bristol Farms, and recently closed an $8 million Series A round led by Maverin Ventures. In this episode, Ross shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from dropping out of college to working at a branding agency in the UK to launching a menswear brand in the Middle East to partnering with his friend Elliot to build Daring. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ross, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear about your journey in building Daring Foods. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. For sure. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? Originally from Scotland, uh, if you can tell from my accent. Um, so quite quite far away, but been living in LA, California for a good few months now. All right. And what was it like growing up in Scotland? I mean, it was great. We, we pride ourselves on Scotch beef and smoked salmon and, you know, cattle export. So it's a uh, far world away from, you know, plant-based diets. But um, yeah, I mean, a, a great place to grow up. Uh, no complaints at all. And so as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A tennis player. Like, <laughs> really? tennis was my sport. I loved it. I was infatuated with going to Wimbledon. I was fortunate enough to go to Wimbledon a lot growing up with my father. So I actually played for, my, for, my, for Scotland and had some pretty competitive matches. So like growing up, tennis was my was my uh, North Star. I wanted to be just like, you know, Pete Sampras and Big Serve. It was, it was the goal. So uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite happen, but uh, still trying to get a game now and again. So what got you into tennis? Yeah, I think it's just uh, I had a court down the road for me growing up in my home. So it was like one of the first things I did. I can remember being like four or five years old and just loving to, to play mini tennis. Went to tennis school, you know, after school and then in summer camps, it was the kind of sport of choice. Um, you know, most kids in the UK love football, soccer, as you would say, and, and, and I chose tennis. Very individual sports. So it's very different. You don't get that team morale necessarily, but I think it teaches, it teaches you a lot very early on. Like there's no one to blame at all, right? <laughs> so um, no, it was good. I, lo I love it. That's awesome. And so what did your parents do? And did you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got two older sisters, um, Nicola and Kim, um, you know, both, both really successful. Um, Nicola is a lawyer, 
living in Australia with two kids, nephews, and I have a sister, Kim, who's an HR director in London um, for a really great company. So, um, yeah, both don't, don't live anywhere near me, Australia and London, but, you know, pretty close. And then my mom and dad, you know, really close with, with both of them. Uh, my mom was, was a nurse uh, growing up. She's now retired. Um, she'd kill me if I told you how old she was, but she, she is retired. And my father, he, uh, he actually, he had his own company. So he's, you know, big inspiration for me. You know, I was fortunate enough to see him build that over, you know, my early childhood into my teenage years, you know, I was fortunate enough to go in after school, see him doing, you know, building, scaling. And what kind of company was it that he was running? It was, it was, um, it was a recruitment company. So my, father had started that very early, you know, in his career. And I think, you know, he built up to be pre pretty, pretty much a market leader in, in our country. Um, so I was fortunate enough to see that, I guess. I think that kind of ingrained in me early on, looking back how, you know, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit and journey. And he's obviously carried that off into supporting uh, my crazy ideas uh, thus far. All right. That's awesome. So you were inspired, I guess, by your dad quite a bit to be an entrepreneur. When did you realize that that's maybe a path you wanted to pursue? I think it sounds cliche, but I've all I've never thought of a profession after tennis. Naturally, like at 16, 17, you realize that's never going to happen. I never decided, OK, I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant. You know, I want to work in corporate finance. Um, I always thought about ideas like I'm an ideas kind of guy so naturally running my own company was always kind of the goal I think early in my teenage years 17 18 19 I always had little ideas I was the kind of guy that would take his pack lunch and try and sell it so micro businesses were always kind of my, my hobby um, during summers and so on so yeah I think very early on that was kind of the, the route I wanted to take you know not necessarily deciding in which field but um, entrepreneurship has been, I would say, in me since a very young age. That's funny you say that you um, would try to sell your packed lunch. I don't know if that was just like a saying or something you actually did, but I'm just curious, what did you have for lunch that you didn't like? <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, I think, I think honestly, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a saying, but naturally that was my kind of spur growing up. It was, my mind would go at a hundred miles an hour and people say, you know, like, I always say entrepreneurship is over glorified, you know, being an entrepreneur. Oh, it's so cool. You get, you know, but like, it's a, I really think it's in you from a very young age. I think I, I've noticed it probably later in my career, but um, looking back now, it was, it was there early on. Yeah. I kind of wish I thought about selling my lunch because, you know, I would always get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with like way too much peanut butter and way too much jelly on it. And I mean, every day I was like, mom, love you, but really like lay off on the peanut butter and jelly. Like one little swipe is good and it would just be piled on every day. <laughs> so good, I should have learned to just I, sell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have good, re they have good uh, playground uh, margins for sure. No, they're, um, <laughs> I, I I can remember doing something something similar, but it was it was a it was it was a good childhood. Yeah, that's great. And so, um, did you go to college? Uh, I went for a year, much to my you know parents' dismay. I dropped out. I uh, was studying finance and marketing. Um, and why did you drop out? Back, it reflects back to what we just talked about. I couldn't see myself spending the next four years, which is what my course was, 
um, doing this. And you what know, what school was this? What school? It was a so it was a really really great uh, school in in Scotland called Aberdeen University. Great place. Enjoyed it. I mean, obviously not enjoyed it and didn't enjoy it enough to to stay. Um, but I just, I didn't see myself there and naturally it reflects into, you know, why daring is called daring because I just challenged a lot of conventional norms. I, I, mm-hmm. I questioned a lot of things growing up. Some would yeah. call it, you know, being rude or being ignorant, but like, I always just wondered why, like, how come, like, you know, is this, could you, exp- and I think that's just not normal when you're expected to do certain things, go to school, get a college, and there's a lot of societal pressures that tell you that's the right thing. You know, that's yeah. the safety zone. And when you have an internal desire to do the opposite, yeah, it's not for it's not for everyone. So um, I didn't do it. Uh, so no I, I dropped out of college too. I'm really curious, actually, what were you questioning when you were there? And then on top of that, when was the moment where you're like, I can't be here anymore? I've never answered that question. And I'd be interested to know your answer as well. But I think looking back, everyone just seemed to be, you know, in a sort of spiral of just not, like, this is what I'm meant to do. It was really, really about what makes you happy. And no one really knows what makes you happy. You're very early. I was 19, 20 years old. You don't really know what you want out of life. Some people do. That's great. I don't think I did at the time, but I think I just knew that what I was doing wasn't giving me fulfillment. So I decided to look elsewhere and elsewhere was, you know, starting businesses or working for other entrepreneurs or or so on. So, yeah, I think looking back, it was just like an absolute, I don't want to say hatred, but I knew this was something which I was doing painfully and I was making other people happy. And I think honestly, Mm. looking at my siblings, my sisters and seeing that college or school university as we call it in the UK like it wasn't a an enjoyable process for anyone and I guess seeing that was just having its effect on me I guess being a third child being the youngest mm-hmm. you get people trial before you so yeah what, what about yourself I'm interested to, to know well that's interesting because you had two older sisters that you know went through college I assume and you kind of saw from them okay this is the path I have to take you know, I actually was the oldest. And so, and my mom didn't go to college. So there was like an extraordinary pressure for me to go and pave the right path, you know, for my younger sister, uh, which I ruined that path. Cause I didn't go to, I didn't finish, but. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, there's such a generation gap between the, obviously my parents, probably your parents mm-hmm. and us. So like the world is changing now where you can have a business on the internet, right. Or you right. can have a business on a social media app or sell plant-based meat. Yeah. So I understand, you know, the, the the emotions behind it, but I think I upset a few people and, you know, hopefully making up for it now. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. 
So did you have something kind of waiting for you on the other side? And that's why you kind of dropped out of college when you did, because on, for me, I, I had, you know, an opportunity that I couldn't pass up that I ended up taking. Um, so for you, was there something else that you wanted to do that school was kind of holding you back from doing? Not really. Honestly, you were just like, like this sucks. I'm out. And then I'll figure it out from there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a jump and build wings kind of guy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, literally. It's been like that for most of my life. Um, I'm sure it's a trait that a lot of sort of entrepreneurs have. It's I'm a, I'm a big risk taker. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, um, interested in other things outside of college and outside of school, sorry. So um, I thought I could put my attention there. Um, but honestly, uh, there was nothing that I was like, well, I'm going to leave and do this. Um, I decided I'm going to leave free of my time so I can find out what I really want to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Nice. And so what did you end up doing? I actually had a friend who lived in the Middle East, um, in Dubai. Um, and I hit him up. He seemed to be running a really great agency, multi sort of channel branding agency. And I said, you know, uh, I want to come out. looks like a great place. Can I work for you? He had some great clients like, you know, Audi and Emirates Airlines, and he was working on their branding and their marketing and their, you know, design, and I said, I'm going to take a flight out. I've never been. I want to just go. I want to, I want to, want to learn. I want to get immersed in sort of building businesses like you are. So I uh, went out there a um, couple of years, worked with him, had my, started a few micro projects, businesses and um, left after, after four years. So yeah, I got immersed in sort of, um, I guess the creative world, the brand world, launching new products, seeing how businesses did that. And then had my own early, early start at, a business world where I sort of launched my own company, which was a menswear brand, noticed a big gap in the market for, uh, you know, uh, I guess clothing over, over on that side that appealed to, to the more Western community. So I started that, launched that and, and had some early, early success in launching my first company. What was that first company called? It was called KA1. It was King's Ambition. It was a menswear brand, simple wear, street wear. I was the designer sales. We launched into you know, retail there and we had a e-commerce channel. This was in essentially, this was would have been what, seven years ago in a country that had no dot-com presence. You know, there was no order fulfillment. Supply chain wasn't great. It was still, wow. you know, wasn't what it was today. So mm -hmm. I was sort of, I would say one of the first to do that. And then naturally, um, the business, like any businesses, comes to a point where you have to invest, you know, raise capital potentially to scale and, and acquire new customers and, and grow, especially on 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 the dot com side. So, I raised a little bit of capital, and and after a year or so, I parted away with that business to my to my investors. So, yeah, it was it was good. I, I learned a lot, and um, I wouldn't go back into fashion, that's for sure. But um, <laughs> it was it, what what I learned from that fundamentally was I like to find gaps in market. I like to understand what customers really needed i felt mm -hmm. and the current part was that that there was no real passion at what i was doing mm. it was business for profit business for margin scale like at any expense so mm. um yeah you only learn that looking back but right i enjoyed it so, so how much capital did you raise for ka1 i would have raised um around a uh, seed investment of around sort of three hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Um, I must have been twenty-two years old or so. Um, yeah, I was twenty-two. 
And by um, part ways, what do you mean? What happened to the business? Um, so yeah, I was uh, received some investment from from a large family office out there. Naturally, in a country where you have to give a large percentage of your company away just because that's the law. Uh, it's it's the law in the Middle East. Fifty one percent allows for. I'm wording this carefully. It allows for direction from certain people upon your business. Mm. So you aren't always in control of, of what you want. So when you're a 22 year old hot headed, you know, uh, hundred mile an hour with all these ideas and then you take money for the first time and you realize that comes with consequences. And sometimes mm. you don't feel, fully do your due diligence on your investors. Right. Um, so I was able to, um, get my money out and a little bit more and, um, yeah, I, I left the business. All right. So is it still around? Was it still kind of running after you left? Did they find someone to replace you? And yeah, the the, the family office that, that they bought it, they owned a lot of the malls and they, they owned a lot of other brands. So they consolidated it, I think, and it's still running today. And I think it's doing relatively successful. All right. So then what happened when you uh, got out of that? What were you on to next? I, I moved back to the UK. Um, this was, um, I think early 2017. So I had sort of had a taste for living abroad. I had a taste for sort of trying to run and scale my own company. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, a couple of years into sort of eating plant-based. This was when I was in my early, uh, a couple of years into, to, to not eating meat. Well, what made you stop eating meat in the first place? Yeah, good question. So I was a big meat eater growing up. Some would sort of say I was a bit of carnivore. It's contradictory to what I believe in now, but you know, um, fundamentally the catalyst for that was, um, was always, always naturally because of sport, interested in keeping fit, staying healthy. I was questioned about how much meat I was really eating. And um, someone had said to me, you know, I eat far too much meat. It was a friend at the time. And I started saying consciously that I would cut down understanding there was potential health benefits. I'm always one that if you give me facts and data and I look mm -hmm. at it, I'm going to try it. Like I'm really in, into that, especially yeah. when it comes to, you know, uh, personal nutrition and, and healthcare. So um, I stopped eating meat and, and as cliche as it found, I really felt like, you know, a new man. I, you know, I had an in increased energy, increased awareness. Uh, I slept better. I just, I just felt better. Um, so I continued on that path and, you know, primarily it was because of health. I know there's a lot of um, environmental impact that's coming to fruition now and animal welfare. But at the time, um, my fundamental reason for, for eating no meat was, was, was health. So moving back to the UK and uh, looking what was on the market, becoming aware of, you know, other alternatives as it was consuming them. I was starting to consume the traditional products and I felt there was a contradiction to my primary decision, which was health. I was mm. choosing to eat no meat because of health, but I was consuming products, which I felt started to make me feel worse. I was looking at their ingredient list. I was looking at their macronutrients, their sodium level, and started to push back on a lot of these products. I think that was a very early catalyst in, in daring. It was a, it was a, it was a realization that there was a, a massive gap in the healthy health space within plant-based meat. Mm -hmm. um, this was late 2017. And, and naturally, I was uh, with, with, with my best friend a lot of the time, Elliot. He's my co-founder. And uh, he also lived this way, ate this way, and felt the same and was, was also interested in, in keeping fit and so on. So, yeah, we, we, both, we both felt that. That was the... Um, How did you meet yeah. Elliot? It sounds like you guys have been friends for a while. How did you guys meet? 
Uh, we met in Paris. Elliot's from Paris. Um, he was working for LVMH Group and then corporate banking there. Uh, and with my first company, clothing, I was trying to break into the French market. I was introduced to him to some friends 10, 11 years ago. And I met him um, in a store called Colette. I don't know if you've ever heard yeah. of it, but it's uh, really, it's not there no more, unfortunately. Uh, but I met it was him such a cool a, store back in the great, day. I mean, it was like the it coolest a, place. It's great. It's great. You know it. A lot of people don't. Uh, and I'm always saying, oh, we met in Colette. And they're like, oh, what is that? And if you don't <laughs> right. know, it just sounds like a normal store. But it was not, yeah. it was not a normal store. It was, it was an amazing place. And I met him there. Um, and honestly, we just hit it off in terms of just sheer passion for business. Uh, you know, we, he loves business. He'd worked with some really great startups in France. He was even there with the sort of and when Deliveroo launched in France, he was spent time with the you know the C level um, people within the company, and I think at that point he was hitting a stage where he felt that he wanted to use his love for business uh, into actually doing something which he believed in. Mm-hmm. So it was just right at the time when we you know naturally it's it's funny he he had stopped eating meat, which is even more funny than Scotland because France you know the culture is 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 cheese and and meat yeah so yeah we just we had a lot of synergies and our friendship you know bonded over both business and and plant-based and and so on what was his reasoning for you know stopping to eat meat was it health as well yeah it was i think he you know just started getting into you know crossfit and training and 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 obviously just naturally you know uh, the millennial culture were very i guess concerned about our our aesthetic and our and our health so which mm-hmm. is a good thing, you know, and you look to what you put in your mouth, you know, uh, and, and, and I think there was a lot of growing awareness that reducing your meat intake could benefit your, your health, your performance. I mean, documentaries like the game changers pioneered yeah. the last couple of years, but it's a great film. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, it's done wonders for plant-based companies and, and, and ours as well. So, um, but yeah, health, health, especially, I think, if, when you say yeah. health, I mean, because, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, my grandmother the other day was just like, I don't know what you, why you don't eat meat. Like, what about your B12 levels? What about this? Yeah. I just don't understand how, how can you be healthy and not eat meat? You know, so can you explain, I guess, a little bit with all the data and information that you've been exposed to and that has gotten you to kind of, you know, choose this path? What are some of those underlying health, I guess, benefits or, you know, reasons, I guess, to stop eating meat? What's so unhealthy about it? Yeah, great question. I think there's a growing number of, of data as a founder and as a business. We're certainly not here to tell people what not to do, mm-hmm. uh, what to eat. But I think the, and it goes back to, you know, for decades, we have begged people to stop eating meat you know, animal rights, animal rights um, activists, global health experts, they have begged us to stop eating meat. But the consumption of animal protein is growing year on year. Like we were raised on chicken. It was been a staple part of our family meals. Yep. You know, it's a standard in our school cafeterias. It's a late yep. night go-to. Um, it's cheap, tasty, and it's omnipresent. But we never looked twice at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we did, um, especially chicken, as we found that, you know, it's an industry married in harsh realities of which too many people aren't aware of. It's, it's had uninterrupted growth for decades, I think, especially the protein. So there was a growing awareness of, of the impact of, of beef. You know, I mm-hmm. think 
other businesses have done a tremendous job of highlighting the, the uh, devastating impact of animal agriculture in the beef industry. You know, the CO2, the livestock emissions. So while we had felt that there wasn't enough awareness around the devastating impact on the poultry industry and what it was having for our health and, and our bodies. Um, what is that, that impact? What, what is that devastating impact? I mean, I don't know if you've have you ever, uh, have you ever read the book Unclucked? No. Oh, it's a phenomenal book. I urge you to read it. But, you know, for us, it means, you know, chipping away at the industry that kills over 9 billion people each year um, for human consumption and for the planet. It means moving towards a more sustainable food source that minimizes the impact on our carbon footprint. Um, what do you chicken. mean it kills that many people? How does it kill those people? I mean, poultry in the U.S. is a $100 billion U.S. wholesale market. We consume almost 100 pounds per person per year. I didn't wow. eat any last year, so someone out there ate 200 pounds. <laughs> um, but we eat it a lot. It's deemed to be the healthiest protein in the world. It's high in protein. It's low in fat. It's low in mm -hmm. carbohydrate. But at the rate we consume poultry and chicken specifically, the, the impact on chickens, the use of hormones uh, has forced farmers to increase the size of their chickens with hormones and it's infecting obviously our our bodies as a whole yeah um, it's it's unsustainable uh, for on a mass scale yeah you know i went to a um a uh, what was it called it was like a animal sanctuary right where they kind of like save some of these animals that are in factory farms being mistreated and so i saw that there was these chickens that were enormous like so big that they couldn't even walk like and they were only six weeks old right like they're so young and the way that they're just you know a genetically designed to grow is so unnatural and crazy to see like live in person it's just really really sad yeah i mean the chickens have tripled in size over the last 10 years it's right it's, it's not normal and we're not, even the we're not, eggs they lay, even the number of eggs they lay. I forget what the numbers were, but it was like a natural chicken lays about like whatever, maybe 100, 300 eggs a year. And then it's like, this is what a chicken on steroids lays. And it's like <laughs> like three times, four or five times a natural. It's like, oh my God, how is this poor yeah. chicken doing that? And you were able to be exposed to that through going uh, to, you know, the, the right. uh, those destinations, but you know, we, we all have picked up chicken or most of us have picked up chicken from the shelf with no, no thought of what's gone on to, to put it in that packaging. Yeah. There's been, you know, unrivaled growth and uncompromised growth in, in the category. And it's really, a you know, if I had a dollar for anyone that said, you know, I don't eat beef anymore, I only eat chicken and fish, we wouldn't have raised any capital because it's just, it just, for some reason, is, is chicken really bad for you? I'm like, yes, it's really bad for you. It's the, wor it's the worst, you know, and we consume it at such a rate, you know, five to seven times a week. Mm -hmm. um, but people love it. The experiences are, are great. Right. You know, people love it bakes, it fries, you know, chicken, fried chicken culture is just so ingrained in, in the U.S. And mm -hmm. and then naturally, it's a, as people look to, to do better for themselves and be more healthier, that health trend, chicken, lean chicken, lean turkey, um, with the lower fat, lower calorie content is, is is a protein source that people are moving towards. So mm -hmm. it's not slowing down. It's the, the market we're going right after. Yeah. That's interesting. So anyways, so you, you know, talk to your partner, Elliot, you're like, I've yeah. got this idea. We're both plant-based. Like how did that conversation go and, and what happened from there? Yeah, it was really, um, 
it was it was nor mine nor his idea. It was almost like a, a spark. We looked at you know different um, product market fit. We looked at you know the red meat space. We looked at what we could maybe do there. Uh, understanding um, early innovation that we had going on in the in the red meat space and. And we knew that we wanted to to work on the alternatives. We had watched Impossible and Beyond Meat do phenomenal jobs of raising capital and get market share. And they weren't what they were today, but they were making a lot of noise over this side of the water. We were living in Scotland and we we just didn't do enough. So we, we started working with a food scientist. We started to understand more about the plant kingdom. We commissioned some some people to really get us up to speed on, you know, um, on and different sources of protein, looking at soy, looking at pea, looking at legumes. And we had found a manufacturer that would work with us on early innovation with, with our product idea. So we took the idea of that we wanted to make the best clean label plant-based chicken. They really capitalized on our health requirements and didn't have any of this, didn't have any of this. And of course, most people will tell you, well, you need this, you need this because this helps this and shelf life. But no, you know, we were on apologetic about how we wanted this product to be. Little me and Elliot had no real food science background. We had no real expert in the space, but we did have a burning fire that we knew what we wanted and what we didn't want. So we, late 2017, we had invested a little bit of our own capital into testing and uh, working with our food science on sort of laboratory style development. Mm-hmm. And then in sort of mid 2018, we had found a manufacturer that would work with us on a larger scale and take our product through some testing and iterations. Um, you know, yeah. that first step, though, that you guys did that you basically self-funded, I think is one of the biggest hurdles, especially in the food industry to get by. How much money does it really take to do that process? I don't think there's a a number that anyone can really take from this and say, well, he said $20,000, right. Twenty Ross said twenty thousand. Okay. Cause I mean, I've listened to all these podcasts. Everyone says different things. Some people will go through the farmer's market or grow really organically, get data, take it through, you know, retailers regionally. Me and Elliot as people both together and individually are, are very ambitious. And we knew that from the early, early days of like product ideation and business ideation, we wanted to be mass market. We've never thought small. So we always look to do things that way, which means that naturally we need to access more capital because we want to get the best food scientists or we want to get better production or we want to get the best branding or so on. So to go back to your answer, it really depends what you want sometimes. You know, if you, if you, you know, and I have this conversation with a number of people and they say, well, you don't always need to think so big. You know, people can take a product, make it in their kitchen, bottle it, and sell at the local market in Venice. Or some people want to go and raise millions and millions of dollars, go through product ideation, testing, and then scale. So it really depends. But for us, we were able to invest our own capital into the business. Um, A little bit of our own money, we completely maxed out. And then we reached out to family and friends to kind of give us that sort of early seed investment. We, We were very early in our product. We did not have our product, which we have today. We had a bit of a sales pitch and we had an idea of where we wanted to go, but we were fortunate that my, my father uh, believed in us, believed in Elliot. He was like a son to Elliot and, and, and myself, obviously. And he had invested in our, in our business in, in mid 2018. All right. Nice. So you partner with this manufacturer, you guys, you sounds like you get to maybe an end product that you like. What are the next steps from there that kind of came together? Yeah. So we, 
we always saw this business launching in the US. Bearing in mind at this time we were in the UK, but we always saw this launch in the US. We'd seen what the other large food, plant-based food companies had done. We'd seen the customers. The, 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 this is where we wanted to be. So I had been put in contact through my um, friend with a customer here in the US, uh, Sunbasket. They're a meal um, box delivery company uh, based out of San Francisco, and it's 2019, and I had, I had a meeting. I got told, come over, show us your product, and yeah, great. So I was like, shit, I got a meeting with Sunbasket. Um, I'm going to fly over. We only had enough money in our account for me to fly over. And um, I think, you know, I managed most of the sales at the, at the time until now. Uh, I flew over uh, with my backpack, a sample bag of our product. And in their kitchen, in front of their CEO, their founder, Justine, their buyer, Tommy, cooked up daring and presented to them with no idea about supply chain, didn't know our finished cost yet, didn't know our wholesale cost, didn't, didn't really have anything in place apart from a little presentation on the brand, our mission, and our product. And they wolfed the whole plate down within about five minutes and said, great, we want to roll this out. Can you get, you know, pallets to these DCs? And I thought, oh, what does that, what does that mean? Sorry. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What's that? And I had no, I had no idea what I got into. So we kind of had oversold the product that we, we hadn't quite understood how we were going to get it to. But it was a sign of this product works. This is this can work if it works for some basket, it can work for more people. So I, you know, packed up my bag, left, and we went back and regrouped on how we were going to do all this. And that was kind of the very early start of of daring, I suppose, late 2019. That's great. So it sounds like your product was part of the these uh, sun baskets that went out. Um, I'm not sure how many you know customers they have or how much exposure that got you. Um, but what happened after that? So you're able to kind of figure out the supply chain a little bit. Sounds like you had to fundraise to probably get that going. Yeah. So we decided to pack our bags. We moved to the U.S. Uh, we you know, became residents. We set up a company here. We went through our visa process. So and, why LA, right? Because you were in San. You said your friend was in San Francisco. Some basket was. Why not just go to San Francisco? Why did you choose LA? Uh, actually, we chose New York. We, <laughs> we we chose New York. We this is going to be confusing for the for the yeah. listeners, but we we were in New York. Um, we were we were living there, um, and we were working there. And and actually, the reason why is because we had. We had, um, I mean, it's, it's, it was always going to be LA or New York, right? That was naturally where, where we wanted to be. And we'd actually, um, in that meeting with Sunbasket, we'd actually met a company called Rostelli's. Rostelli's are a, a really high quality protein, animal protein distributor, wholesaler. Um, and they had taken a, a like for our business and saw opportunity. They had some expertise in the plant-based space and distribution. And they, we partnered with them on a distribution partnership to help us get the product not only to Sunbasket and more. And they were, they were an hour and a half away from New York. So we decided to move to New York uh, and work with them and helping uh, early launches in our business, which was both in Sunbasket and retail and grocery with Sprouts. But we, we were living in New York. Now we're in L.A., but uh, we were in New York originally. And so, so what made you come over to L.A. then? So, yeah, we were, I was spending a lot of my time flying, uh, pitching to customers. At the time, we were only two people. It was only me and Elliot. Um, so he was managing operations and finance, and I was doing sales and marketing. 
um, and trying to raise capital as well. So I was flying over um, from New York to LA, you know, almost every week. Sprouts, there was a lot of natural grocers that are based here. Pre-COVID, they were taking meetings. So it got really tiring. You know, it's it's impactful and obviously it's costly. So as a, as a startup company, when you're running really lean, uh, we decided to just um, to shift our base and, and move here. It was only after COVID, or only now during COVID, that we've done it. But um, it took a few months to do it. But um, yeah, we we um, we're now here in LA, and uh, we're happy. Nice. Now you guys have awesome branding, and the name is really cool. Um, I feel like I know where the name comes from, daring, right? You're being, you guys are sound very daring just as individuals, but I, as a company being very ambitious, is there anything else behind the name daring? Yeah, I mean, daring stands for a lot. It's, uh, you know, we believe in challenging the status quo, turning, you know, obscurity into ubiquity. It's it, it's kind of how we've always been as people, uh, myself, Elliot, we've always looked to question things. And I think uh, daring being daring as a person can can be really advantageous. So we're looking to challenge, you know, how people hire, how people grow businesses, uh, and obviously we're looking to challenge the uh, the poultry industry. So um, yeah, it really reflects more than just a product. And it's super interesting. I mean, the product is basically like a um, kind of grilled chicken alternative, right? A lot of there's kind of um, been some movement in the um, chicken nugget world, um, but you guys really kind of went after this other kind of grilled chicken uh, alternative, which is kind of cool because then it's, it can be in stir fries. It can be in a, like a burrito. It can be used in so many different types of things. What made you guys kind of focus on that category of like a grilled chicken alternative? Well, it would come, it came down to health originally, you know, um, our pillar in the beginning was looking at the health gap within plant-based meat that was missing and naturally keeping it as pure as possible made sense for us. It's much more versatile as well. Food service, um, was a big channel for us in distribution, uh, working with restaurant chains and allowing chefs to do more than just a nugget. There's mm. very limited. There's a lot of limitations within a breaded nugget. Yeah, you know, it's a nugget or it's a nugget. So with daring, it can be like you said, anything. It can be you know stir fry. You can pan fry it. You can deep fry it. You can bake it. You know, it really is. We we have it as a company internally. If you can make chicken, you can make daring. Um, so we focused on that versatility, which I think gave us a huge differentiator in the market, in, in a market that was very busy with, like you said, chicken nuggets. And we just launched a breaded product this week. And we fundamentally say, not a nugget. It's a breaded tender. It's a peel. It's a texture. And, that, and that's what people loved about chicken, right? People love texture. They love the, the peel, the flake. And we look to really replicate that with their product. And I think we've done a, a good job. Yeah. Uh, great job. Whereas a nugget is something which, you know, if we're really honest, nugget consumption is going down. It's not necessarily the most health, healthy product in the world. There are healthier alternatives with gluten-free breading and better and better ingredients. But mm-hmm. naturally, it's not a product which as a consumer, as a millennial consumer, we want to come to, you know, often time and time again. So when you're looking to take on the chicken industry and have an impact, remove chicken from from the food system, can you really have an impact when your customers are only eating your product once a month or now and again? You know, we wanted to fit this product into consumers' life every single day, the way they eat chicken, boneless, skinless thighs, or boneless, skinless breasts. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the market we really looked to go after. That's awesome. So how big is your team today? Um, so our team today, um, so, so I guess three months ago, it was three people, and today it will be 
we 12, 12 people or four, four and we have five job five jobs out at the moment. So yeah, I think we're we're on our way to to twenty people before the end of the month. Yeah. What have you got what have you learned most about hiring? Are there any red flags that you kind of um have realized along the way or do you have any HR tips you can share? You know, it's a, the first sort of team I'm building out with with my partner and um hire for your values, you know. There's a lot of really great talented people out there, but are they great for your company? Like it's really interesting. And we I'm fortunate enough that I spent a bit of time with a great woman called Margot. She used to be ex Starbucks and, and and Stitch Fix. And she's you know a bit of a mentor to us and, and myself and Elliot. You know, it's if you look at your values and what it means to be daring, is does that person have behaviors that reflect your company's uh, values? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting. We've gone through a lot of hiring now. You know, where if you think about it, you've gone from t- two to twenty. That's a lot of growth in in a couple months, and it's continuing to grow. Um, but it, it's good, and especially in today's world where we don't have an office, we don't have a fixed location. There's a uh, you're trying to grow a company with a great culture. It's it's harder to maintain. But um, yeah, it's um it's something I love to do. You know, setting the vision and 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 sort of steering that ship is is something I, I really I really embody. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges you face during the process um, of fundraising? You have raised a $8 million Series A round. Um, how did that go? Tell us about your experience in fundraising. Yeah, we, you know, prior to that, we had raised, you know, uh, I guess a, a small um, pre-Series A, just short of a million dollars, New York family office, um, pre-launch. you know, pre And then, yeah, we just, Pretty proud to announce we hit the milestone of an eight million dollar raise, uh, led by uh, our friends at Mavron, uh, Dan in particular leading that with Natalie um, Dylan. So, what did we learn? Um, I mean, we learned a lot. It was, I will be honest, it was a it was a longer, quite uh, due diligence process. And when you go after money from people like Mavron or venture money. You have to be willing to to go, you know, go through it all because you're an early stage company. There's a, probably a a lot of gaps in your company, holes in your company. There's a lot of due diligence that needs taking place. So if you ask for it, be willing to to go that full 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 way. So yeah, we learned a lot. But I mean, fundamentally, we learned because it was successful that we learned that we had a great product, a great product market fit. We understood our customer, and we have have a really great pipeline in place. Um, and we're doing things right. I think sometimes as founders, it's very hard to have these small wins, right? You can, we launched into our first retailer. It was a phenomenal win. Now we just, we're taking on retailers quite often and we don't even take a break. So the fundraising was a, was a great opportunity for us to really question our sales channels, our hiring process, our team, our org chart. It was, it was, it was just a three months revising our business plan. You know, it was um, it was it was impactful, but it was it was good. We we're happy with with the outcome, and we're happy with the people we brought on the company and attracted. Were there any you know naysayers when you were fundraising that you had to, you know, I'm sure there we were. Got? How long have you got? Um, what were they saying? Too early. Um, why won't Why won't someone else just do this? You know. Um, do you think this market will last? Yeah, we had a lot. I mean, we're not a stereotypical company. We are very early with a lot of upside. A lot of our pipeline for 2021 is is very aggressive. And sometimes when you look 
it depends where you're looking for money, right? I mean, if you're looking for a family office, VC, PE, you have to fit into certain criteria sometimes or most of the time. So I think to a lot of VCs that we spoke to, we just didn't tick a lot of the boxes. Great product, great brand, revenue compared to valuation didn't match up. So when you're looking to, in today's CPG world, you're seeing huge valuations, you know, compared to revenue and earnings. Um, And I think sometimes it's hard to find the right match. But yeah, we had a lot of no's um very early on we did some outreach i think we had probably 100 um uh, companies we reached out to and we had a lot of no's and we were fortunate enough to get a an a, a yes year very early on they weren't going to lead the round um so they, they weren't going to do the majority of it but uh i was very fortunate to be put in touch with uh joey's willinger from Allbirds, um nice. who's the one of the co-ceos and founders there and a great guy, obviously done a phenomenal job with the, with Allbirds, especially mm-hmm. uh, over the last few weeks with their recent raise. But I'm very inspired by what he's done. He said, listen, love the product, love the brand. Uh, we've just um, set up a, a, a outfit called Good Friends with uh, Neil from uh, Warby Parker and the guys from Allbirds uh, and the guys from Harry's. But we can't do, we were looking for $8 million or around $8 million, but we, we, can't, we can't do the full amount. I got to introduce you to the company did our A series, uh, series A, which was was for Dan and Mavron. So it was, you know, one person to another to another, and 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 we we met uh, we met Dan back in in um, in June uh, of this year. So we went through a couple of calls, and we flew out to his his uh, office and, and house in Sun Valley, and went through some some interviews and due diligence and so on. So it was it was great. That's amazing. So I think surrounding yourself around the right people is pretty key. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, it's it was harder because we were we've been living in the U.S. for for seven months. I mean, I know. I'm like, you haven't been here very long, and and no. you have met a lot of great people. How has that happened? Um, do you just stalk people great... on LinkedIn, or like how do no, you? No, I only just started using LinkedIn. I realized how great a tool it was to to connect with people, but um, I'm not good at the social media world. Um. No, I think it's just um, you know, I'm 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 the first guy to to uh, I love selling, right? That's a big part. It's where I feel comfortable within the company. I like to to sell. When you believe in your product, sometimes it's it's easier, right? You have yeah. something that you want to show people. So yeah, um, as well as when you're you're passionate about it, you want to talk about it. So I um, I've been fortunate to be in situations, whether it be a, a bit of luck or uh, having the right right time, right place uh, to to meet some great people and some people that are willing to help. I've really noticed that you know, when you meet founders or other founders or other entrepreneurs, like people want to help genuinely, you know, yeah. people will help and uh, don't be afraid to ask for a bit of help. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not a bad thing. Yeah. It's a little shocking. Cause yeah, they, there's a lot of willingness to help. Uh, I think founders understand each other's pain, you know? <laughs> to- totally. I mean, I've had some since, since series A was announced, I've had some great conversations with other founders and it's almost it's almost funny you compare notes here and there and it's it's almost mirror image but it's good yeah um, it's funny so tell us about one of your most challenging moments and how you overcame it like when was a moment where you thought this was never gonna work um, you know maybe you were considering throwing in the towel maybe you weren't but when did you kind of face plant you know when did you really feel um, what was that most challenging moment I think one of the most challenging moments was probably earlier on when 
we were searching for capital. This was pre-Series A. You know, we were we had a product and we just knew there was an opportunity, but we were in a in an environment where there wasn't tremendous access to capital, especially for a business like ours. Your pre-revenue, you are you know looking to do something which hasn't really been done in the market in the UK. There wasn't a Beyond Meat or an Impossible Foods, and I think we were essentially banging our head against the wall for for a good good six months. You know, we had offers of investment that were looking back now they've actually given me a fire to go out there and you know and smash the series a i think we were you know uh, half our business for x and and you know you're thinking no way i didn't i didn't come here to do this this is better for that sometimes investment will break you sometimes you look to actually partner with you so i think that was one of the hardest moments we were fortunate enough to to meet some great people in new york and go through a sort of convertible note pre-series a late 2019 but prior to that it was it was a, it was dog work we were really really finding it hard to get in front of the right investor investors in the uk um and obviously uh, you know it nearly put in a, in a position where we couldn't continue uh the business right and so how did you how'd you break through to find the right people we again introduced we were introduced so i think people taking a notice for the right opportunity and people knowing people naturally in the business world, you've, you've got to speak to X, mm. you know, speaking to X and taking that opportunity and jumping at it. We, you know, like I said, a jump in the wings got on the next flight to New York and there was no plan B for us. It right. was, it was, there was no plan B. It was never like, okay, well, if this doesn't work, we'll do this. It was like, this is going to work. We just have to hold on for as long as possible. I don't think we actually ever looked at each other and said, this is not going to work. We just didn't know yeah. if we could last. And if we didn't last, we had to, you know, get a part-time job or do something that would support the, 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 uh, the long-term goal. But we were fortunate enough to, to have some people believe in us. And I think naturally that's helped because it's just the awareness in this country of, uh, of plant base and the upside to investors. Uh, long -term. Yeah. That ability to hold on, as you were just kind of saying, you know, during tough times or during just, yeah, tough times in general, when there's challenges like that and they kind of drag out, they can drag out for a lot longer than you want. Yeah. I mean, COVID alone is basically that in itself, but you know, with founders, you kind of deal with that all the time. Um, how do you stay persistent? Is there like a routine or a, what's your mindset? How have you, how has your mindset changed or grown as a founder? Great question. Um, it's definitely it definitely has grown. I think the expectation on oneself when you go through different periods and there and there is your what who I am today will not be the same, you know, CEO founder in a year or who I was last year. There's different expectations both internally and from shareholders and stakeholders to become, you know, a different a different founder and CEO. But I think fundamentally it comes back down to um using the hardships to really like propel yourself forward and actually uh, see it as a, as a milestone that you've overcome. Um, you know, it, it does sound cliche, but these things will actually make you stronger. So you'll come up against I come up against these challenges every single day. Now, a year ago, I might have brought me today. It's just part and parcel of running a business, but also surrounding yourself with people that can help you overcome that. You're not alone. You build a really strong team around you. Uh, both advisors, both founders, both internal in your team, and you know you can you, you can do a lot together. I really I really believe teams win. You know teams win, um, and that's part of the process. Both myself and Elliot and you know Mavron are bringing on board and saying you know building that strong team around you to to do more. 
So tell me how you think of this. I think some there's some founders that, you know, I think maybe when they're going through a really hard time, they have the ability to be vulnerable and they reach out to their network and they're able to try to get support from that group, right? Yeah. Maybe there's other founders that keep it to themselves and just keep their blinders on and keep plowing through. You know, which one are you or which one do you think is healthier or what do you suggest or how have you kind of dealt with situations like that? I am definitely not the kind of founder who's afraid to reach out, get advice. Um, I like advice. I actually like flourishing it. I, I enjoy it. I think we've been able to bring in great, um, some really great people into into the last round of funding to really help myself as a founder and Elliot as a as a founder and a CEO of the company to help build us. There's something to be said about I've done this before. I kind of know this. I've built a team or I've launched into 40,000 retailers or I've raised X amount of capital. I have been fortunate to be able to uh, to, to achieve that uh, in terms of completing the funding. And I now have a, an, an amazing, um, uh, I guess, um, cap table of phenomenal founders or investors or you know, CFOs or CEOs that I can pull information from. Obviously, you have to be careful of how much it affects your decision because it's your business, not theirs. They don't have all the information. But I think as long as you're willing to 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 use the experts around you, then it adds value to the decision. So yeah, fundamentally, I love to take advice from people who have done it. Um, and, and I'm fortunate that we we have a great mentor and 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 our, and our investors with Mavron. Yeah. That's excellent. I think there's a lot of fear that founders have, especially maybe with investors where they feel like they have to look perfect all the time or they want to make sure that every update looks great, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I think that I think that just comes down to doing your due diligence on who you're taking money from as well. Like what are the expectations going forward because it's it's money is not money. I mean, there's it's completely different and I will say to anyone who is looking to raise capital, do your due diligence as well. I know it's tough to say that because you're desperate for money. Need is need. Need is is, is not, well, you know, need is not want. Sometimes you literally need it to, to get to the next stage. But, you know, understanding that these, found, these investors, you know, have expectations and as long as you mitigate that and manage that and get to the forefront of that and have an open, di open dialogue, then uh, it puts a lot less pressure on the other side. I think one of the the processes we've gone through is gone through that series A. It's been very clear in the beginning of expectations after the completion of the round and and, and what we can expect and what they can expect. I mean, under promising and over delivering um, is, is kind of what we're. Yeah, I agree completely. And even having a conversation about those expectations, I think, is really important. And a lot of things founders don't, they don't really do that. Um, I wonder what are some of the questions that you asked as part of your due diligence with investors. I think. Part of the, 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 the diligence was really understanding um, expectations from us, expectations to achieve certain goals. Um, it, it's always interesting because when you look for different types of investors, whether it be a tech investor, they're really concerned with valuation, or when you're looking for you know, a more focused CPG investor, they're looking for certain data points. So I think one of the processes we've gone through is speaking to a really plethora of investors um, doing our due diligence on expectations as us, doing our due diligence on expectations in 
um, you know, growth in channels. You know, do you want us to go really hard into this natural uh, conventional grocers into big box stores? Is, is it about that, or is it is it growing the brand, you know, and and the integrity there and growing a consumer leading brand? So some investors would say, I want you to be in every store. I want you to take every deal you can. And some investors were saying, I want you to grow slower. I want you to maintain the brand equity. I want you to, you know, really focus on the data and the spin. So we knew what we wanted and we did ask certain questions that affected our decision on where we were going. I'll be honest, you know, we were fortunate enough to also speak to other founders. I had Joey yeah. from Allbirds give me the introduction. Joey received the Series A from Dan. They have a great relationship. Dan sits on his board. But uh, Dan made his portfolio available to me so I was able to talk to how the process was. Mm-hmm. But um, they really quite make you question what you want, you know, because uh, yeah. they think they think big. Different investors think, you know, uh, the investors think differently, right? So uh, I will say they they think about, you know, um, so they're swinging for the fences sometimes, and and they're going big. So it just makes you challenge and think about what you really want as well. So now it was, it's interesting. Yeah. What kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make up a strong entrepreneur? I think grit. I think grit is super important. You're going to go through the, uh, you know, challenge, conflict, critique. You have to be willing to just, just go, go and go and, and, and endure it. I think uh, being able to um, adapt and, and being nimble. I think I always see this as a company being big on the vision, but being nimble on tactics, you know, mm-hmm. COVID has made us launch a .com site. You know, we didn't plan on doing that. I think entrepreneurs are willing to uh, shift focus uh, fast. Uh, and understand that sometimes the product market fit isn't right and you have to adapt. Um, so I would say those are probably my, my two main criteria for, for how criteria is, but personality traits that I noticed that successful firms have. So if listeners want to buy your product or check it out and give it a taste, where can we find you? Online, obviously, on your website. Yeah, daring.com. Yeah. With retailers. Um, so we were at Sprouts, um, all locations. We're with Bristol Farms this week, Gelson's this week, Fresh Time this week. Congrats. Um, so some really exciting new launches. Um, and we have a store located on our website, so you can find out if we're in your area. But we have a lot of new exciting launches, new product launch this week. And then we're launching with um, Just Salad um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, promo- as a, a branded product in their menus in, in the East Coast, in New York, and all 36 locations. So Daring and Just Salad are doing a big launch as well. So, yeah, really exciting. That's excellent. Congrats on all of your success and your round that you recently closed. Um, before we wrap up here, do you have any final advice you'd like to share with aspiring or you know, seasoned operators, entrepreneurs out there? That's a good question. I wish you told me that before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You've already shared some great tips. You know, I thought it would be an easy question. No. Yeah. True. I mean, honestly, I think this is a great time to be launching your own company. You know, it's a it's a phenomenal time to run your own company and doing your own company and challenging norms. I think fundamentally, I think it's important just to really understand your customer and really understand, you know, what they want. There's, there's, there's some phenomenal business out there that sometimes lose touch with, as they scale, lose touch with, with their, with their real customers. So no, um, nothing that they probably already haven't heard, read, or, or listened to, but, um, yeah, I urge people to, to take the, the journey into entrepreneurship. It's a, it's an exciting one. Awesome. Thanks so much Ross, for being on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate having me. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. Thank you.